Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Royal Automobile Club talk show in association with Motorsport. I'm Ed Foster, and I'm the online editor of Motorsport magazine. What a special hour we have lined up. Not only do we have the return of Jack Phillips, our online content assistant, we have Anthony Davidson. Anthony, a very, very warm welcome. Thanks very much. Yeah, good to be here. Um, so, apart from being Formula Formula former Formula One driver, winner of the World Endurance Championship 2014. You are also the winner of that year's Tourist Trophy. Um, and we're sitting here in Pall Mall in the club today. Uh, you're sort of here for quite a special evening. What's, what's going on this evening? Um, well, we're here to uh, celebrate the Tourist Trophy. Um, and uh, yeah, in, the, in combination with the RAC here in Pall Mall and uh, the WEC in a combined effort to uh, yeah, celebrate uh, that uh, amazing trophy. and. Uh, and just motor racing in general, which uh, is uh, with Silverstone coming up uh, for the first round uh, on Easter weekend in Silverstone for, for the WEC, our opening race of the championship. It's, uh, it's a great way to celebrate it. So I mentioned you won the Tourist Trophy in 2014, and that's obviously for winning the British round of the World Endurance Championship. Obviously, when you're a driver, the winning the race is the most important thing. But these, ac these extra accolades, things like the Tourist Trophy, I mean, they must mean, they must be quite special as a driver to get sort of not just the Winners' Cup, but also the, that socking great big trophy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, being a Brit myself, it's, it's easy to appreciate. Um, but on that day, uh, my two teammates, who are one's from Switzerland uh, and the other from France, they, they didn't really recognize it they didn't know what it was all about so I had to explain it to them you know it's the oldest trophy in motorsport it's really something special some really famous names on there um, so to join that elite uh, few that have been on the uh, engraved on the uh, on the trophy side is uh, is, is amazing um, and we lifted it with pride all together that day um, I wouldn't say it's a, a cherry on top it's it's something that means more than that um, you know, when, when, when your racing career is done and you look back at it one day, you tick all the highlights, I guess. And uh, that would certainly be one of the highlights in, in having your name on, on a trophy such as that. What, why do you think there are so many? I mean, there are loads of British drivers in sports cars at the moment. Is that because of a particular era of drivers being so strong and they haven't sort of quite, it hasn't worked out for them in Formula One? Or what, why are there so many British drivers in sports cars? Because there are loads of them, which is great. And it's, you know, it's really good to see. But um, is, is, the, is there some secret to it? Why, why aren't we seeing them all? We must be so accommodating, I guess, as, as people, <laughs> as a nation. You know, we, <laughs> we, uh, it fits well in sports cars where you have to be uh, selfless, I guess. But uh, I don't know. Um, you, you know, uh, F1 is an egotistical series um, where only the strongest survive. And I think maybe there is, you know, I was joking, but maybe there is some truth to it in that, uh, you know, the Brits are quite accommodating and, and we, you know, we're, we're good team players and I think that's really what you need in sports cars. Um, but yeah, you know, Formula One these days, it's it's taking a, an awful lot of money, like it's always done, but even more so than ever before. And maybe, you know, LMP1, LMP2 is now seen as a true ladder to get to Formula One. Um, so you can highlight your talent in, in sports cars as that progression into F1, whereas maybe a few years before it wasn't. Before it was a world championship, um, I think it didn't have as much uh, accolade and, um, and recognition. Well, when is the point where you think, I'm now a sports car driver, rather than so all the young kids now coming through, swapping their single-seaters for sports cars? When do they reach that point, do you think, when they're now a single, uh, sports car driver? It's, I mean, there's, there's no definitive answer, I guess, for that. For me, it was easy. Um, the F1 dream ended when my team pulled out and uh, the money wasn't there. I had no personal backing and I was uh, I was yeah, mid-twenties anyway, or late-twenties actually. Um, and 
you know, after ringing around the teams, and I think then Toyota pulled out as well, and and there were basically more drivers than seats, and I just thought, you know what, it's time to look elsewhere. So for me, it was quite easy. I felt like I was on the older side already in Formula One, um, and I'd given it a good go, and and you know, under unfortunate circumstances, I was left uh, out in the cold really. Um, but I think for younger drivers coming through, it's it's a harder question to to answer. Um, I think you just have to grab the opportunity when you can in Formula One. And if it's not there, and if it looks like it's not going to be there, you, you have to look elsewhere before it's too late, and then you're forgotten. I think it's interesting that actually quite a lot of drivers at a very young age now are saying, I want to drive sports cars, which is it's, I think it's, it's good to see, and certainly it's good for the World Endurance Championship, and there's drivers recognising the, the calibre of drivers in the championship at the moment. So that is... That is good well, when I, f- when I first joined sports cars, I, I called it the uh, the secret of motor racing, the secret formula of motor. I, you know, nobody really knew about it, especially the younger drivers. I mean, when I was when I was a kid, I, I knew of Group C, but I wasn't as fanatical about it as Formula One. I, I didn't really watch any races. I knew that the cars looked cool, um, and that it was a hard, you know, particularly Le Mans was a, a really special hard event. Uh, but I didn't, um, it, you know, I did I didn't follow it avidly. Uh, like a true fan, like a bobble hat, and uh, but I did in Formula One, and um, I think since it's become a, a fully fledged world championship, it's it's seen as uh, you know that that's kind of secret formula is is gone. It's it's now very much in the spotlight. Yeah, and I uh, so I'm, I'm going to start off with a couple of sort of less positive points, um, but don't worry, we're g- it's going to get more and more positive as we go through the podcast. We're going to be dancing on the tables to sort of highway to hell um, <laughs> by the end of it. Um, so at the end of last year. It's, Break, you know, the breaking news was Audi pulling out. Um, first of all, A, did you see it coming when, you know, as soon as Porsche came in, the sister mark? And secondly, you know, how big an impact is that on the championship? Because they've been there so long, they're the team that everyone always sort of aims to beat. Um, and there's now just, uh, there's just Toyota and Porsche left, really, in the, in the LMP1 class. Yeah, well, it's not the first time in my sports car career that I've just uh, been there with, with the two manufacturers to fight each other. Um, when I was with Peugeot, it was, it was Audi. And now with Audi gone, it's it's uh, Porsche. So the sole VAG group remains. Um, I can't obviously speak on behalf of, of them. It's their decision uh, at the end of the day. And uh, you, you know, one it's, it's a bit of a double-edged sword, really. Manufacturers being involved in in, in sports cars or, or Formula One or any category of racing, um, it's brilliant while they're there. It's terrible when they're not. It's and and you you have to ride the the crest of the wave while it's while it's good. And we had a, a great. Uh, couple of years with the three manufacturers I managed to luckily win the championship when there were three manufacturers it kind of gives it uh, well for me it was a bit more personal pride really the fact that you had conquered two uh, manufacturers rather than just the one and um, but yeah it it ebbs and flows and you know manufacturers will come and go it's part and parcel of of motor racing and as long as there are a few around it at any time that's a good thing Um, and it's good that such manufacturers like Porsche and Toyota are attracted to to uh, WEC at the moment. How did that Audi battle evolve? Because every year seems slightly different. The car would be have slightly different characteristics. One would be better. Did that feel like a different year every season? Or did it all merge into one yeah, long battle? It's uh, well, having raced them since the Peugeot days. Like I say, it's um, I've really seen the sport change a lot. Not just in terms of the regulations, but in terms of the the professionalism between the teams. Um, I think when Toyota first joined, they bought this all the knowledge from Formula One. You could really see they were a fresh Formula One team um, to try their hand at something else, um, or to retry their hand at something else, I should say. And you could see that where Audi and Peugeot used to be, Audi then had to step it up to Toyota's level um, in the aero department, the engine department. You know, they really had to raise their game and then Porsche joined and everybody else had to carry on raising their game because it's uh, you know that that's just the nature of the beast it's you know people come in full of energy um, throwing everything at it and you it's, it's been really fascinating to watch the series uh, grow and grow and to uh, to be a part of that as a driver and and the technology that that evolves every year is is sensational it really is I mean we don't talk about it enough we're not allowed to talk about it enough. It's a shame. 
um, but that again, it's it's uh, it's part of motor racing that when it's at that level, it's it's secret it's secret business. I, I have a section on some of the technology, so I, I guess that part is going to be a little bit shorter than I, than I foresaw. <laughs> Not going to get much. Yes. <laughs> um, the final sort of less positive question I've got. Um, we can't go anywhere really without talking about Le Mans 2016. The sort of the most gutting result for a team I think there's been in in all the sort of recent decades certainly and um, you know and probably it'll be in the top 10 of the history of motorsport I think or even the top five. Um, I've got a question here from Nick Holland um, who wants to ask how does it feel of being robbed of that Le Mans victory um, and how do you to follow it up does it increase your desire does it, I mean how long does it take to get over? <laughs> it's a good question um, I knew the question was coming. <laughs> um, yeah I mean everybody to answer it in a blunt way, everybody has a coulda, woulda, shoulda story from Le Mans. Um, that's that's that race. You know, it's a it's a long old race. Lots of things can happen at any point, um, and it's in a way it's more gutting when you lose the race very early on, because then you have to get back in the car when it's fixed and then endure the whole 23 or 22 hours of knowing there's no hope. In a way, like we did in uh, in 2014. And there was no hope of victory. Somehow we, we, we managed to get a podium out of it. Um, but you were never going to win the race. And that was the hardest Le Mans I think I've ever done in 2014. But um, we bagged those valuable points for the championship, and which we then focused on later in the year and, and, and eventually won. But, you know, in terms of coulda, woulda, shoulda stories go at Le Mans, I think I've pretty much got the best one. So I'm, I'm quite, kind of, yeah, happy and sad about that. Um, how long does it take to get, to get over? I'm really still not over it, and I think even if I go on to win it another three or four times, um, I'll still remember 2016 as, uh, as as really that one that got away. A lot of um, some drivers would say that Le Mans is so important they'd give up you know, the World Championship for it. Would you put yourself in that camp? So you'd swap 2014 for a Le Mans victory? No. No? No. Because the way I, I kind of got through last year is to tell myself that it's um, it's a one-off event, as grand as it as it is. It's a lot of it's down to luck, as we all saw last year. Um, you can really, on paper, have all of the credentials to win it. You can do everything you want to win it, but if it's not meant to be, it's not meant to be. Where to win a championship, as a driver or any athlete in the world competing. To put together a world championship and win it is uh, is is much harder than doing that one. Although yes, it's a it's a whole day of racing. It's still just one day of racing, um, rather than lots of different circuits, lots of different permutations, weather conditions, different scenarios of traffic to deal with, different handling characteristics of the car and the different tyres and everything else you have to combat through a whole season of racing. For me, as a sportsman that's much harder to to come out on top of and it proves that you were the best through the whole season you were the best on average um, whereas that one race well you can fluke it to, to, I was going to say there are some obviously fantastic drivers who won Le Mans 24 hours but there are also some who probably didn't deserve to win the Le Mans 24 hours based on talent alone so you know it's, it's, it's as you say <laughs> well, I mean it's, it's a tough one yeah I mean everybody deserves to win it um, if they do stand on that top step I mean you know last year we as a team we we threw it away um, as unfortunate as it was and as, as as unlucky as it was well from a team's point of view it wasn't really that unlucky because the team can control reliability a driver can't control reliability maybe like they could have done in the olden days um, so from a driver's point of view yeah it's unlucky but as a whole team where well, it wasn't really unlucky um, it's unlucky in a way when it happened it's unfortunate but uh you know these things can be controlled from a team's point of view and uh, just like a driver can control not going off the track so the the guys that ended up winning that race that day well none of them went off the track none of them did anything crazy or silly and they all deserved as drivers to stand on that top step um you know our car crew deserved to stand on that top step we didn't do anything wrong um but as a team a whole team we did do something wrong and uh, and that's why we didn't we didn't win it. So uh, yeah, it's just all we needed is one one more lap. And uh, if they had built that car to do twenty three hours and fifty seven minutes or whatever it was, uh, they did a really good job. But we need twenty four hours. So <laughs> it's um, yeah, that's just you know looking at it very pragmatically. That's 
and that's does the it, answer. Does it make you fall a little bit of love with the, with the race? Oh, I've done run. that a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've done it enough times to have fallen out of love with the race a long time ago. And, and you know what? I got the best out of myself last year by, and it's no disrespect to the race whatsoever, the way I got the best out of myself is treating it like a 24-hour go-kart race for charity. Because I just thought... Blimey. Remind yeah. me never to invite you on a 24-hour charity go-kart <laughs> race. You know what? It's just... I, I just approached it last year and I'll do the same thing again this year and even what happened last year concretes the fact that I approached it in the right way last year and that anything can happen at any time in that race as long as I do my job you just see how it all unfolds and um, you know I, I drove the wheels off the thing don't get me wrong but it's because I was loving it because I didn't care about it I was loving it and if you go into that race really het up, like I've done in the past, wishing you're going to win it and give it everything you've got and, oh, you're going to be so depressed and disappointed if you don't win it because, oh, I need this in my CV so much, you know, you're never going to win it and it's, it's going to eat into you because it is a cruel race. So approaching it like I did last year, for me, it worked. Maybe for some others it wouldn't. Um, and uh, I'm really pleased. I think that is the best I've ever driven in a sports car race last year. Um, in Le Mans, and I, I want to approach it in exactly the same way this year. Right, on to more positive things. Um, I, I was going to talk about the hybrid systems and things like that, which we will do, um, despite the fact you're not allowed to talk too much about them. Um, there's a question here from Stephen. Um, uh, something you did win, um, Formula Ford Festival in 2000. Um, he was saying it was one of the best defensive drives he's ever seen. Um, how important was that win for your career? Yeah, I think it was, it was pretty pivotal. Um, it was a great race. Um, it was it was a defensive drive. Uh, basically, to cut a long story short, it was wet the whole way through. We had the car to do the job in the rain, um, in the in the Miguel uh, French chassis that we were driving at Hayward Racing, and uh, against the Van Diemens, the works Van Diemens, um, and it dried up for the final. So I was there on pole position. I'd been creaming it easily all the way through the weekend I did the race was mine and then it dried up and um yeah everyone went into it in the unknown but I kind of suspected the the Van Diemen's going to be strong and they really were um and I just had to defend every single lap I'd I'd seen how it should be done from from other races I'd done uh, previously around that track and I think uh, yeah if anyone wants some tips on how to defend around Brands Indy I'm I'm the man to ask cuz uh, <laughs> yeah I did it from start to finish uh, ended up with bent wishbones from them trying to smash me off and everything it was, it was pretty epic um and uh, yeah the race team got red flagged with just five laps to go and they restarted it <laughs> it's like come on so <laughs> we all started again and the same thing happened again there were damp patches on the track and we were on slicks and it oh it was pretty sketchy but uh yeah, across the line, it was more relief than joy, I think. Um, and I think yeah, I was being watched by the BAR team at the time. They were just starting their young driver program. And uh, yeah, they, uh, they, were, they were pretty impressed with, yeah, a Formula 1 team only cares whether you win or not. They, they weren't there to see it. Um, they just want the phone call, yeah, we did the job. So we could ring and say, yeah, we did the job. And, uh, and I got onto their young driver program from that point. And yeah, and, and the rest is history, so. Formula Ford racing is, is some of the sort of it was some of the best racing in the world. You know, it's so it great really to watch, is. especially at brands when you know you can kind of see so much of the circuit. Anywhere, yeah. I mean, yeah. I look back so fondly on Formula Ford. Yes, they had no grip and they were pretty skittish to drive, um, and maybe you adopted some skills that you never really needed to use ever again in your career, like heel and toe and an H pad gearbox. You know, but it was, you know, it was really hard to drive. Um, and the best thing about it, by miles, no wings, lots of slipstreaming the leader could never get away. And there's something to be learned <laughs> yeah. from Formula Ford well, on, in, for, on, for that. On that <laughs> note, what do you think about the new Formula One rules? Um, talking of sort of uh, no, no downforce and no grip. Well, it's exactly what I was uh, suggesting. It's, uh, you know, if you go putting big wings on cars and, and generate lots of downforce from the wings, well, the wings need clean, clear air to work efficiently. Um, so as soon as you get behind this kind of invisible barrier of no man's land behind the car that you can never get to because the wings won't work when you get into that kind of bubble uh, well you're never going to have pure racing and you're going to need to rely on things like DRS to as a, as a band-aid to try and get your way past the car in front um, so Formula Ford and in a way sports cars as well 
um, because we don't have the big wings. It's a lot of it's from ground effects in a sports car. Um, you know, you generate the grip in a different way, and therefore the racing is more organic. It's more pure, and you don't have to rely on uh, on, on kind of what I would say gimmicks. Yeah. So, looking at this here, um, let's let's talk about this forbidden topic of of technology. Um, the rules have been sort of quite static for a while, but what could you just sort of explain in a few sentences the hybrid system on the on on the car? Because um, it's not the same as Formula One, um, but it's an extremely com complex, cutting edge. So, for a layman like me, what are you driving? <laughs> We're basically driving a souped-up Toyota Prius. That's, that's basically what it is. It, it's, it is. it shares a lot of the same It's got to be sexier than that. <laughs> I don't know. Have you seen the Super GT Prius? That's pretty sexy, yeah, I must say. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's essentially, yeah, I mean, it is similar to the to the Formula 1 system, uh, particularly the Porsche system, I believe, because they run the, uh, the heat recovery as well, uh, like the, uh, so I mean, the, uh, the turbo, effectively charging the, the battery at, at, at high speed. In, a, in Formula One, they've got their set of regulations. In, in WEC, uh, you're allowed uh, two recovery systems. So Toyota choose to run a front electronic motor and a rear electronic motor to harvest the energy under braking, so kinetic energy. Uh, whereas Porsche has opted for a front electronic motor and the turbo or the heat recovery. So there's their, that's their two options. So achieving a similar thing but in a in a different way um, and so our system is more favorable for uh, heavier longer braking circuits i.e Le Mans um, whereas the uh, the Porsche system and the F1 system uh, can regenerate a bit of uh, a bit of charge to the battery at high speed when you're flat out um, it starts to sap the energy from it, it, it effectively turns off the turbo and then that that energy goes into the battery as far as I am aware um, <laughs> that's how it, their system works. Um, so it is incredibly uh, sophisticated. It's complicated, and uh, but it is fascinating. You know, for a driver like myself that's technically minded, uh, I love technology as a whole, and uh, to drive these cars that have this huge battery um, delivering massive power, uh, almost half of what the engine, the combustion engine, will give. Um, is is incredible with with eight megajoules around Le Mans. Uh, you really feel it when when the battery kicks in, um, and uh, when when it deploys. You know, at the beginning of the straights, it it really is. Uh, you know, it's it's a thousand horsepower combined, there or thereabouts. And um, uh, despite the weight of the car, you you really get a good a good kick. And uh, yeah, you, it's it's really fun to drive, knowing that when you're braking, you're recharging all that energy stores it up super quick um, you know you can never believe how quickly they're able to regenerate uh, energy into the battery these days and the technology just keeps evolving more and more and more and this technology is it, it's there in, in road cars and, and what we learn on the track it, it really genuinely does not just saying it for PR BS reasons it, it does you know they're learning from it and they're it's filtering into the road cars what was, what was the first hybrid car that you drove because I just want to know what it was like when you came from sort of normal, normally aspirated F1 and then drove a hybrid car for the first time. Uh, well, it, it was the Toyota. So it was so the Toyota. Yeah, 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 that okay. was the first hybrid. Uh, no, I, I tell a lie. It was the Honda F1 car. Um, just before they pulled out, um, I drove it at a straight line test in Santa Pod and I had right. the Kurs button. And it, uh, yeah, I remember feeling just this little bit of extra power from the, uh, from the battery. Um, and then, yeah, when you think where it's come from since that day, that would have been back in end of 2008. Uh, yeah, it's, it's progressed it, more than tenfold. It's, it's incredible what they can do now. How do you think um, Lopez will get on, obviously jumping straight into this Toyota from... Well, he's done quite a bit of testing, yeah. so, uh, yeah, and he, he's an adaptable driver. I mean, we saw when he did touring car coming from single-seaters. Yeah. Um, I, I think that for him probably... Uh, not that I want to speak on behalf of him, but it was probably a bigger challenge driving this front-wheel drive car than in touring car with no grip, and, and you know, that must have been really different, yeah. a different experience going from open, you know, open-wheel single-seater formula in, in, I think, GP2 he came from, and, and then going into, into touring car, that must have been really difficult. Um, so to, it's almost for him, I guess, it's like coming back home. Although he's got all the tricks to learn with uh, the hybrid yeah. stuff from inside the car, but 
a lot of it is is automated these days. It's, it's quite rare to jump straight into LMP1. So Mike Conway did P2 and yeah. a lot of drivers work their way up and but he's coming straight in. It's going to be quite an interesting year for him. Yeah, yeah, it will be. Um, I think the biggest challenge, the, the biggest shock to him will be traffic management. Um, you know, gone are the days Not for him where you can just get your elbows out and have a bit of a ding dong. It's uh, <laughs> even if you get close to another car in P1, you, your bodywork falls apart, and uh, <laughs> it's uh, yeah, they're pretty fragile machines compared to what he's been driving. But he'll be fine. You know, anyone that's anyone that's won what he has in the past and uh, uh, and, and succeeded like he has, it's it's going to be it's going to be easy for him, I think. But it will be an eye opener the first time he, I guess, at the prologue, it'll be the first experience he has of. Wow, this is a jungle out here. I'm, I'm gonna have to, <laughs> I'm gonna have to survive this. Yeah. A lot of drivers sort of complain about the traffic, and GT drivers aren't perhaps as sort of experienced as they should be. But isn't isn't that part of the charm of Le Mans? I mean, I I think it's easy to say charm when you're a spectator, when you're in an LMP1 car <laughs> fighting for the lead. Um, it's probably not charming, but uh, you know, some of it is when you get into a into a rhythm of of where you overtake the cars where they're slower than you, where they're almost as fast as you. Uh, even a GT car can be as quick as you in some of the slow speed corners. They've got amazing mechanical grip, and uh, especially in, in slippery conditions. So learning all of the different uh, teams and drivers out there and categories is, is, part, of, is part of sports car racing. Um, nobody likes it, it's, it's difficult. You all have to share the same track. You all have a bit of road rage every now and again. Um, I've done Le Mans in the GT and in, in P1. And uh, two very, very different experiences. Um, it's a bit like being, you know, we're here in central London. It's a bit like being a, either a cyclist at one minute on the road or then in a, in, in a white van. It's, you know, it, it's, you all have to get on and you all want to get from A to B. But it's, you know... the as long as you appreciate each other's challenges that lie in front of them, it's it, you, you just have to respect the fact that um, you know there, there will be moments where it, you touch each other and, and things go wrong, um, and that it will be someone's fault at the end of the day. Um, but some of it is really unavoidable. It's it's just you know I think I worked out once that you overtake roughly 500 cars from your journey starting Le Mans to the end as each individual driver. And to overtake 500 cars Even in the, the eight hours of driving. Even the average white van man wouldn't do that no, in London, no. no. <laughs> I say I've seen more, more drama on the way here driving my car through London than, uh, than what I do in Le Mans. But, uh, yeah, so there, there is that challenge there. And, yeah. uh, you know, you, you, things will, every now and again, it's, and it will go wrong. And I think that's, that has to be, the skill of the drivers from all categories has to be applauded um, for how, how little that actually uh, comes to light. Yeah. Um, Sorry, just one second. The, uh, you mentioned the GT car, but that was Ferrari 550. Um, yeah, drove. Done research. Why are you thinking that you didn't particularly enjoy that, Lamar? Well, uh, I was I was kind of just on the brink of getting into Formula One properly. You know, as a test driver, had been for a long time, and uh, the reason it came up was through the Pro Drive connection because David Richards was at BAR at the time, so I had the opportunity to do Le Mans. Looking back at it now. I should have done a lot more racing uh, when I was a test driver. It, although it was a, a bigger job than it is today, or it was a job back then. <laughs> uh, it's uh, you know you you covered fifteen thousand kilometres in a year testing, so it, it really was hard work. But still, I should have done more racing, and I'm I'm glad I did that race. Not that it ended well with a car in the barrier with a, a broken uh, uh, front right wheel bearing, which sent me off. I'll still never forget Darren Turner for that. Thanks, mate. <laughs> Never told me about it, never warned me about it before I got into the car, but uh, yeah. <laughs> I wondered what that weird noise was when I got in down the pit lane. Um, so yeah, that was my first visit to the uh, Le Mans hospital. They remembered me actually when I went really? back there in, tw in uh, 2012 <laughs> and they were broken back. You've been here before. <laughs> so it all looks the same when you're on your back because the ceilings, are, I don't know. But uh, yeah, I mean, so I've, I'm glad I've got that experience to fall back on. Um, and I think in that year, I was I was looking in the mirrors more than going forwards. Um, I, I was I was kind of petrified out there, not being in the fastest class, always having to accommodate for the the faster cars, and always being on guard for when they're going to strike, 
pop out from, from into your mirrors and they're there the next minute in the corner diving down your inside so um yeah in some ways i in some ways because i i managed to stay out of trouble and maybe i was too accommodating um i'm a little harder on the gt drivers when they when they, when they don't see you coming because that day that that 24 hour race i really did see them coming i i lived in the mirrors like i say um but then, you know, you, you are dealing with amateurs sometimes out there as well, or gentlemen drivers, and, uh, and and things can go pretty pretty wrong through no fault of their own. It's like being on the road with a, a learner driver. You can't really, you know, you, you can't put 100% blame uh, on their side because they're, they're not at your level. They haven't got your capacity, and you, therefore you shouldn't treat them like they've got your capacity so i've almost got less tolerance for the uh the pro drivers when something goes wrong than than for the amateur drivers and i still i i can't blame uh the driver that uh that clashed into me in in uh in le mans in 2012 i, I can't blame him 100 percent. it's just it's just the race you know those those things happen I was, yeah i was going to ask that really um because it was mainly his fault and Perizzini, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So you know, but you know, at the end of the day, it's like you crash into a learner on the road. It's you, you can't. You, you, it, although it might be their fault, it's you. You can't blame them. You can't be as hard on them as as you as you would be if it was a, a pro driver. Say. Did you find it um, difficult to trust for the next race? Did you find it difficult to? Were you sort of find yourself looking for them after that? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And uh, and I still find it hard to overtake into that corner today but I learned from it you know the mistake I made was going too far over to the right hand side before the corner and probably got into his blind spot through again no fault of my own I was thinking I'm safer if I get away from the car as far away as possible but actually I've learned since it's better to be closer to the car before going into a corner like that because they've got more chance of seeing you um, especially if they're a left-hand drive car like he was. So, you know, I think if you don't learn from situations like that, then then it will happen again. And uh, I make sure that I I try not to overtake into that corner, um, especially today with the fuel cuts that we have. It makes it incredibly hard to judge closing speeds. Um, like it was back then as well, although we didn't have the fuel cuts, it was a new car to me. They're always tweaking the regulations, and I don't, I don't think it's appreciated um, a lot of the time how, what an implication that has a knock-on effect for the drivers out there in how we have to then recalibrate for all the different categories and the car that we're driving for those different situations that you find yourself in so I was approaching him still with my, with my Peugeot head on and in those I would have made it I would have made this, the, the gap easily and been in front of him but in a car that had a different set of regulations and hybrid, and I think they had tweaked the regulations for the GTs as well. You combine just a few different tweaks of the regs here and there, and 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 it can be sometimes a recipe for disaster. So on a on a lap at Le Mans, you've obviously you're looking out of GT drivers. You you're obviously trying to concentrate on your race and your pace. How busy are you with the hybrid systems? You mentioned that there's sort of some of them are automated, but it's not just a case of um, you know throttle brake steering and gears is there? It's, there's, there's a lot more to it yeah there's, there's a lot more to <laughs> it um the drivers more in tune sometimes than the uh, than the engineers are uh, you can see the information on the screen quicker than what they can sometimes or expect the situation that might arise from a battery that's got that's too fully charged or too depleted um different things can happen um to your to your car if you get into those situations and basically as as everybody runs hybrids more more and more uh they're learning that to keep the battery in this kind of happy equilibrium of temperature and, and charge gets the best out of it um so you know that's what you're always trying to do and manage on the track and uh say in formula one it's easier to do because they have less um They've, they've got bigger storage for what they actually use, what they need in Formula 1. So they, they charge and, and uh, deplete the battery a lot more slowly than, say, the Porsche system and our system would in P1. We stress the battery much more uh, than, than an F1 car would uh, with the 8 megajoules that we're running at Le Mans. So um, to, to keep the battery in that kind of happy equilibrium is, is quite a challenge, not just from a driver but from the team's point of view as well. 
So we're on top of that inside the car. You know, we, we can change the way that we brake. Um, we can change the way how we put our foot down in the in the corners and where we decide to lift and coast for the fuel cuts that we have. So although there are quite a few kind of automated systems around hybrid technology in racing cars these days, the driver can still have a huge impact and influence on how uh, how you can sort of store the energy and use the energy. I think that's why um, the sports car drivers in Formula E are often seen to at the front because they're yeah. used to dealing with all the batteries and all, everything they need to keep an eye on. So Wemi can just drive off into the distance. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't the uh, he wasn't the only one. Although he is very intelligent and stuff like that, um, probably is one of the reasons why he's so strong in Formula E. But uh, you know, other drivers do they do understand it as well. And um, you know, Lopez is for example, he's doing Formula E and he'll be learning a lot there and 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 I think it's uh there's a crossover definitely between um what you do in formula e and 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 WEC and you know vice versa so yeah they as long as there's a battery involved somewhere <laughs> a driver's going to be knowledgeable on yeah. on how you store the energy and use it a bit of an awkward calendar this year as well the, the yeah um, <laughs> it's uh it's a series you know I'm interested in I I I like I say it said before I like technology and uh you know I know electric pure electric cars don't float some people's boat but I I I respect it as a as a series um and at the end of the day you know it's a racing car with four wheels and it's you know there there's there's an engine there and um I, I think you know some great drivers and and it shows that the good drivers from WEC do well in in Formula E um and vice versa it's you know is is a I think it's a good series but there's a there's a clash of the calendars, and I, I see yeah. uh, Seb and and the other guys, you know, Jose, struggling with their calendars, and I sit back just laughing sometimes. <laughs> I think, well, I'm glad I'm just doing wet. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's interesting. Sometimes I ask talk show guests, you know, what their favourite era of racing was, or if another era they would have liked to have competed in. But I get the impression that actually you're competing in your, you know, preferred era because you love the technology, you love the hybrid systems, and okay whenever you were racing, you thought it would have been cutting edge. And I'm sure in 40 years' time, they'll look back and maybe listen to or watch this podcast in virtual reality or something and, <laughs> and say, God, Hans, you know, you would have loved it now. Um, so what, am I right in thinking that, that it's, this is kind of the era for you, the cutting edge? Well, you know, different people have enjoyed different generations of motor racing through their lives. And, you know, I've, I grew up in the, uh, in the 80s watching Formula One, so I've seen... Uh, the turbo engines they had back there and then going to normally aspirated and the V10s and then I've seen the slicks and the groove tyres and lots of dependency on, on big wings in Formula 1 and, uh, and and then the the introduction of hybrid cars and uh, although some people they don't like it I I followed it from from the beginning and I think every single iteration that comes along I'm just more and more fascinated by it you know I I don't remember feeling disappointed that the, the original turbo era went in Formula One and I enjoyed the sound of the cars back then when they went to the normally aspirated engines um, not that anyone was complaining about the sound of the turbo engines in the first place in the 80s and I remember my dad complaining oh these things sound awful but I enjoyed when they went to the to the normally aspirated it sounded cool um, they looked good um, and then, then aero technology really started to develop, and uh, that was fascinating. Watching all these winglets springing up on the cars, and and how much fast they could go with lap times, and and it was all because of this aerodynamics that nobody really understood back then. And then, and it's become so powerful in in racing now that almost it's to its detriment. Um, and I think maybe that now needs to be detune slightly and find the grip somewhere else in sake of finding better racing or more pure racing and I think that's what I get in sports cars you know I, I get the chance to sit closely behind the car in front um, and really pick your line carefully to know where you're going to pounce or not and actually the regulations of having fuel cuts for us although some people don't like it they don't like the idea of oh you're saving fuel by lifting and coasting at the end of the straight well actually I, like I said before it gives you a tool to use inside the car that is up to the driver's discretion where you use the override of the fuel cut. And this makes some fascinating moments on the track. Because if you're going into a, a place where you know you're racing the guys who's gonna get the fuel cut same as you, if you press the override and you happen to use more fuel into that corner, well, you're gonna get him. 
or her, and then you're going to pull away on the exit of the corner, but they know that you're going to get that cut, a bigger cut, somewhere else on the lap. So it is organic. You know, you're still, you've still got the same energy allowance for the lap, but there's no DRS involved. So for me, that's still pure. And later on in the lap, it's up to you to defend your, your situation, and they've got more fuel coming later on than you have. And uh, mixed with the traffic as well, that's what makes the sports car racing so fascinating when you're behind the wheel. Yeah, I d- Group C was basically a, f- a fuel limited formula, you know. So and people yeah. always look back at Group C and say, "Oh God, what a, what a mega era!" And mm. you know, they t- I think re- the, there is always a case of roast into glasses in motorsport. I think we we just know more now as well as you know. I, I speak as a fan. I've been there watching the the Melbourne Grand Prix, and uh, speaking as a fan of the sport we're just way more informed today as well and and uh, and it's how you deal with that information sitting on your sofa you either embrace it or and, and and always trust that whoever's behind the wheel it's still about skill whether it's a skill that you appreciate or not you have to appreciate that it is a skill like heel and toe used to be a skill it's not anymore you know it's, things I come and go know. It's, uh <laughs> <laughs> i can't remember the last time i healed and towed a car but uh, yeah you know it was a skill for me in my career at some point it's not anymore um, but I've seen people struggle with flappy paddle gearboxes, and uh, and it's it's just a different skill. Yeah. Now, it's obviously, the championship battle this year is is between between yourselves and Porsche. Is there a? I mean, obviously, we haven't had even the prologue yet, um, and the first race isn't until next month. But do you have a sense of where you're at in terms of the development and st- um, where you might be in terms of in relation to Porsche, or is it is it just a complete unknown? I mean, surely you must hear rumours and, and no bits and pieces. Little bits and pieces, but it, it, it really is a bit of an unknown. Uh, you know, you can kid yourself sometimes. Think like we did in the 2015 season that we had a really nice car. We'd just come off the back of a championship. The car still felt pretty similar to the, the last year's car. Um, you know, we had a, a bit better hybrid system. The car had more grip slightly. The aero was more cleaned up, a bit more sophisticated. And we, you know, we really thought we were going to be at least in there with a shout. And we got blown away. It was just, yeah, I mean, y- you just don't know sometimes. But, uh, you know, we, we nearly won Le Mans last year on merit. Um, we had the car to do it there. We were competitive uh, on at other circuits through the year. We we won Fuji again on, on merit um, at the home race. And uh, so I think, you know, if we can build a car at least to that level, we're going we're gonna to be right there with Porsche. The car at the moment feels good. Um, that's all the driver has to go by. Um, the way that the car used to feel compared to how it does now. But we've had a quite a significant tweak again of the regulations, and uh, and and who knows who who's read it right? I don't know. Um, in the same way, the F1s went to Melbourne. No one really knew. We all suspected Ferrari had a good package, but we ultimately a lot of people didn't believe they could actually win the race like they did. Um, so we like to believe that we're there at this point with Porsche. Um, I think it's good to not expect any more um, to level your expectations, and um, and then you can only be pleasantly surprised. And that's that's the better way to to, to approach it rather than thinking you're the you're the big dogs and you're going to uh, go there and destroy everybody, and and then you get uh, completely trampled on. That's that's not a good. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's always hurts even more. That, that year, I think Toyota made about three seconds a lap improvement but then Porsche made six sure that it can't happen again well now knowing what we know about the battery system um, compared to our old uh, super capacitor system we all knew the first time I drove the battery system I, I just laughed out loud in the car because it I could feel what we were fighting against all all the last year you know in 2015 and uh, with the regs at least from the powertrain side of side of things staying the same it, it would be it's almost impossible to imagine that kind of speed difference happening again in terms of the powertrain side of things. You know, we're both at eight megajoules now. Back then we were at six versus an eight. Um, so, you know, it, you're on a level playing field in terms of megajoule allowance for the lap at least, uh, like we were last year. And and uh, so, yeah, th- just from that alone, I think we'll be, we should be, you know, hopefully there'll be a good fight. Yeah. 
Now, it's, if, if we were doing Le Mans, we would be approaching sort of lunchtime on Sunday at the moment. We are nearing the end of, uh, of this talk show, but I want to take another uh, question here. This is from a Rockingham Slot. I'm guessing that's not his or her real, real name. Slot Cars, I think. Slot Cars, right. Um, is there a reason behind the driver combos? Um, he's saying, I presume driver combos have a similar styles, and, well, you know, because obviously that's useful when you get up to set get to the setup of the car or do you just compromise on setup and I mean how much thought goes into the driver combos? First you pick the driver that doesn't pee in the seat <laughs> they're out straight away and then you go from there <laughs> no it's um, basically at Toyota we, or most of the time you just get you just get put together you know the team decides you get put together um, it's very rare that the drivers have a say in who they would like in the team next to you or not when you're signing contracts as a driver, it's, it's every man for themselves. Uh, you know, it's you, you you get you get the contract. You're happy to be there, and then you kind of get told where you where you're going to end up. And uh, it's only when you get established in the team that then you can start to maybe decide who you would like with you. Um, and uh, you know, that's that's only happened very very rarely from drivers that I know. Um, but yeah, you know, drivers come and go like teams come and go, and and you kind of, you know, I used to be Vert's teammate in uh, in Peugeot, and we won races together, big races like uh, Sebring, and uh, and then you arrive at Toyota. He was already there, established, and I arrived there, kind of like in the second car, and so I wasn't his teammate then. And it, yeah, it's some readjusting goes goes on, but uh, it's um. Like I say, it's when you get the contract and you get into the team, it's you can't be fussy on on wh who you want to be with. Yeah. How much? How difficult it was it when you first came into sports cars to sort of share the car? And because for Formula One, single seaters in general actually is, is an extremely sort of selfish sport when it comes to the driver, because it is all about you have to be the most comfortable you can be in the car and have the car um, perfect for you. Some drivers, I think, find it quite easy to then step in. You accept what what it is. Um, and other drivers find it quite difficult. Where, where do you sit on, on that scale? Well, I was always quite a good team player from where I came from. My background as a test driver, I was always doing the, you know, doing the donkey work for, for the race drivers, setting the cars up, um, you know, giving them all of the information you could do in a debrief. They jump into the car and they get the glory uh, in the, in the, on the race day. And um, so I was kind of used to being a real good team player and maybe settled into that role slightly too well. Um, too British, maybe too British. Like I like I joked about at the start, you know, I was very accommodating. <laughs> so uh, so I found it really easy, and actually I much preferred it. You know, as a person, I much preferred being in a, a less egotistical kind of atmosphere, um, and really working with a team of drivers, um, and that the camaraderie between the drivers, on top of the working relationship you have, and the sharing of success or defeat as a trio of drivers or a duo, whatever it will be, uh, at that time, it's it's uh, it's like when you see football players celebrate together. It, there, there's more elation almost when you win uh, than than when it's just yourself. It's quite a lonely experience sometimes in F1 or as a, a single seater driver. When you win, it's great. You feel brilliant and it's great for your CV and everything. And a few people come up and say, "Well done." and you get the accolade from the fans and, and and the respect, but you don't. There's no one else feeling like you, and that's the brilliant thing about sports cars that there are at least two others <laughs> that feel <laughs> exactly what you feel, yeah. and it's it's cool. So, yeah, I I I like that side of it. Um, and some drivers are more egotistical when they come to sports cars. There's uh, uh you know, a lot of. Uh, Non-Brits. Adjusting, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Some Brits as well sometimes, so yeah. <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's really fascinating to watch the drivers that struggle, and even drivers that you could pick from Formula One that you know would struggle more in a sports car environment than uh, not naming any names. They would, you can see the I ones that would yeah. struggle more in a, kind of in a sports car environment. than, uh, And it's not just from sharing the car with teammates, it's how you behave as a driver um, as a person almost within the team you can be very destructive uh, if, if you're a you know if you if you if you rock the, the boat too much in a sports car team it, it can it can change the whole atmosphere uh, from having a you know a, a bad egg there yeah. 
fascinating answer. I've never heard it put so eloquently. Um, Thanks very much. Yeah, no, <laughs> lots of people sort of talk about it, but it's, yeah, beautifully put. So um, what I've tried to do over the last, uh, last few talk shows is ask some quite standard questions to each of our guests. Um, um, that they're not too difficult, don't worry. Um, they're not sort of on the, on the detail of Toyota's hybrid system. Um, first one is you've got one car and you're going to take it to a track. What are you taking and where are you going? One car, well, race car. Just yeah, you can be yeah. A, yeah, race car. Let's, let's stick, stick to race car. Could be something that you haven't even driven. You know what? Yeah, I would like to. I would like to have a go in uh, in a modern F1 car, um, just to see what they feel like, how the powertrain feels compared to what I drive, to feel this uh, massive grip that they have today. Um, if it wasn't one of those, it would be probably the uh, the V10 um, Honda or BAR, whatever it was back then. Um, when I was test driver, 2004, that was they were they were really quick cars as well. And uh, maybe to compare the two of those, you know, the modern F1 car versus the 2004 car, um, to see where see how they would line up. But um, yeah, I'd, I'd probably go for the the modern modern hybrid car just to just to see what it's all about. I see a motorsport cover story coming up. Um, so <laughs> where where are you going to take them? Where would I take that car? I mean. I've never, believe it or not, I've never done the Nordschleife in anything. Really? Yeah, yeah. Only on the wow, video even game. even I've been around the Nordschleife. Yeah, right? so you're one up on me. Look at me. Yeah, wow. yeah. I'm sure I'll get loads of offers now <laughs> yeah. to drive anything. Well, I'm pretty yeah, sure yeah, we've yeah. got Mercedes and BAR <laughs> on the phone right now, actually, <laughs> wanting to do a back-to-back -back test. So, um, but I think, yeah, I'd, li I'd leave that one because uh, it, it would be uh, a bit brutal on the, uh, on the car around there. Um, some some fantastic circuits. Um, I was only speaking to somebody the other day about uh, Elkhart Lake, uh, Road America, and I think that would be a, a pretty special track to, well, to drive anything around. Um, but yeah, particularly a, a modern F1 car or, or sports car, that would be uh, that would be a good experience. Yeah. Right. So the the second one, um, who has inspired you the most during your career? Um. I was always a fan of uh, Alain Prost. I liked his style, um, him, and uh, and then yeah, the, you know the typical ones of Senna and Mansell, and basically that was my era growing up. And they were they were your heroes. You know they they were doing something you just love to to do when you were a kid, and almost when you get there, it's not special anymore. Um, but uh, yeah, back then it was I really I admired the way that Prost drove um so conservative but extremely quick as well at the same time and i think people forget that um how closely he he ran center and actually could uh could could often destroy him on the day um you know he he was he was better than what people yeah give him credit for and, think, yeah, and, and and he yeah. did it in such an effortless way as well um that's a big skill to yeah. to make it look easy um, but it's, it, it never is. It would have been perfect for sports cars as well. He would have been, yeah. yeah. We <laughs> could have shared a seat. <laughs> <laughs> was, it, was it Murray Walker who's, who said famously on the commentary, um, oh, Alan Prost is slowing down. Oh, no, he's not. He's just broken the lap record. <laughs> I, something like, I think it was either him or Mansell. Anyway, um, right, uh, it's the second last one here. Was there a specific moment when you knew you wanted to be a racing driver? Was it watching the likes of Mansell, Senna and Prost, or was there a... Was there a moment when you suddenly thought, "Hang on, I want this to be my career. This, this is it." No, not not to not to get into karting. I was too young then. You know, as an eight-year-old kid or seven-year-old kid, um, it was my dad's ambition and drive to get me and my brothers into karting because he could never afford to do motor racing himself. Um, so for him, it was uh, you know it, it ticked all the boxes of he would uh, you know it's cheaper to do, cheaper to run, to get your kids into it. And, and kind of live motor racing through the kids um, and watch them develop as drivers and, and learn what it's really all about at grassroots level. Um, so I never really, you know, it w I, I didn't sit there watching TV, watching Formula One, listening, getting weaned on Murray Walker. Uh, I didn't sit there thinking, I, I want to do this one day. I have to get into a car. You know, it's, I was playing football at the time. Uh, for my local club and winning trophies there and that was kind of my thing and then one day my d I just found myself at the local kart track uh, at Rye House in Hoddesdon and, and having to go for my eighth birthday and and y you know that I was driving around then I can't really remember it 
but uh, that's how I got into into racing. But I do very much remember specifically the point when I remember thinking, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life, and I'm good at it, and I know I can make a living from this. Um, and it was when I was 14 years old, uh, doing junior TKM, uh, and it was at the, uh, the Open Championship in Bucknell Park uh, that I went on to win that day. And uh, I remember thinking, yeah, I'm... I know I'm good enough to do this forever. Um, and, and that was the defining moment that uh, really nailed it for me, uh, winning that race that day. Then I remember going to school and they were talking about, you know, what you want to do as career prospect and stuff. And I, I was just, I was single track. I, I knew what I wanted to do. And I definitely from that moment didn't give school <laughs> enough attention. Um, uh, yeah. If only there were hybrid systems around back yeah. then, I, I would have been fascinated <laughs> at school. Um, am I right in thinking that you actually, you were sort of quite happy in carts though? Uh, and mm. actually that making a step up to Formula Ford was not something you particularly sort of had in the front of your mind. It was, it was something that developed and obviously you excelled straight away, winning first six races and finishing on your pole. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. Um, you remember better than I do. I, but I, but it's, it's strange that, isn't it? For, a lot of races, it's as soon as they start karting, it's oh, right. Where's the top Formula One? Okay. Whereas with you, you you wanted to get to the top of the karting, which you didn't, but then you were quite keen to stay there. Yeah, it's a weird one. I mean, the dream was Formula One. To get to Formula One, when you were a kid, you know, the, the dream to get to Formula One when you're doing karting was was strong. Um, but uh, I think I'd done karting so long, I could I could sort of see it becoming my my future. Just in karting, I had no backing from anybody um, I'd seen uh, my old sparring partner Jensen Button move on from karting into Formula Ford and thinking oh it's never going to be me uh, you know he's, he's the lucky guy's found the backing and off he goes it's gr- you know great for him but I wasn't I wasn't so disappointed um, in thinking my future's in karting you know I was a paid professional kart racer doing world championships um uh, driving for an Italian team, living in Italy—it was, you know, it was, it was great stuff. But uh, yeah, when the chance came, I knew I had to—I knew I had to take it. Even though, yeah, e- even though I was a little bit apprehensive, I think at first, thinking, "Oh, Formula Ford, you know, it's going to be hard then to come back to karting if if it all goes wrong. What am I going to do?" But uh, you know, I'm I'm glad I uh, I'm glad I did it because at the time I thought, "Look, well, Jensen's gone and done it. He's done well." You know you're at his kind of level. You have been through all the early years in karting. There's no reason why you can't replicate what he's done. And uh, and and then yeah, just uh, I made the jump when when luckily found the backing. And uh, yeah, never looked back. Mm. It's worked out all right. To be honest. It did work yeah, out all right. It's all right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. The final question is: We really are. T- um, t- we are. T- t- I'm not going to say uh, 23 hours and 57 minutes through. Uh, Lamar, um, but we are approaching that time. It's, if you weren't a racing driver, what would you have been? Um, a footballer, perhaps. I don't know. Um, I, I don't really know. It's it's too hard to. Uh, I, I do get asked this. Or I have been asked this a lot in my career, but I, I never I never know because because doing something from an eight year old kid, you just it's all you've ever known. Um, but uh, I enjoy I enjoy the tech technology. That side of things in racing, I, I probably would have done something in in uh, in programming or or you know some kind of tech. I reckon um, maybe like graphic design or something. My, my dad's a, a, a traditional um, sign writer and graphic designer. I probably would have got into into business with him and 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 been the sort of computer side because he was the traditional sign writer, like I say, and uh, and and had to by himself make the jump almost to the, the computer age of, of, of sign signage and, and stuff. So I, I probably would have been the, the one to set up with him and uh and, and be the uh computer bod sitting next to <laughs> next to the old man. But uh yeah, I don't know. I mean that that's probably what would have happened. Yeah. But uh, I'm glad it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and there are many fans out there who are also extremely glad that it didn't happen. Um, Anthony, thank you so much. For, and best of luck this year. Thanks very um, much. Here's to another World Championship and a, and a Lamar win. Um, Jack, thank you very much for joining me and asking sort of sensible questions. Uh, Alan, thank you so much for recording this, as always. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching. We'll be back very soon with another talk show. We'll see you all then. Bye-bye. Thanks for now. Bye-bye.
Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 